Okay. Welcome to another episode of the Tim Berry Podcast. I'm very excited. Um, it's been a second. We've been very busy lately. Uh, Manchester's been digging in hard on our new album, which is a huge reason why we've got the amazing Catherine Marks at the table today. I'm so stoked to have you here. Thank you and so much for having me. Thank you for me. being on the show. I've been looking forward to sitting down with you for a long time, and I feel like we have a ton to talk about. It's it's very, very packed right now. Um, but before we get into all the things that Manchester's doing and what we're up to right now, I did want to take a second and go back a little bit and talk about some of your past, if you're if you're up for some of that, yeah, of if course. I can dig in a little bit. Um, it's kind of exciting. Catherine ha has been busy, busy, busy for years recording, engineering, um, just being in the industry and all sorts of facets. And I feel like you have a lot of insight and, um, and a lot of experience that you bring to the table um, that maybe people that want to get into the music industry and recording and all of that, you know, they could learn a lot from you. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How you doing? Pretty good. Yeah. Sorry that you missed Pure Bar today. That's okay. <laughs> to I, need, I needed the extra 20 minutes sleep. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, just working hard on our record. Catherine's getting no sleep no. right now and working long, long hours. So I'm, I'm pretty lucky to actually even have her here right now. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, as much time as we spent working on music together and hanging out, there's a lot about... Your, you know, I'll he, you'll tell us stories kind of in passing sometimes about, you know, when I, these old experiences that I love to hear, like the vacuum story and things like that, for yeah. instance, which you have to tell at some point. But um, it's it's good for I think for people to get a glimpse on uh, what a long term path this is. Yeah. If you're gonna be if you're gonna be this kind of person, then you're committing for life, right? Yes. This isn't this isn't a two year trajectory. This is a long term process. So, um, let's just kind of quickly recap your experiences and tell us how you how did you get into being you know in the recording industry and work your way up from starting in studios? How how does one go from starting at the very bottom yeah. to to now producing records on your own, winning, you know, Catherine won in 2018 producer of the year, which I think is massive. Thank you. Props to you. So proud when I saw that. I was like, yeah. So I'm I'm just uh I'm excited for you, but I also want people to understand this isn't all, it's not all awards, right? It's no, not I... all just like, you know, glamour and 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 uh good things happening. You have to do a lot of a lot of hard work yeah. in the meantime. So how did you get started in the recording industry? I remember you saying something about for a little while you wanted to go to, to what were you doing, architecture school? Yeah, so the, it's a long story okay. and it was kind of a long journey to get here. Yeah. But I had loved playing music at school and I'd learnt the piano when I was growing up and I, I loved writing music and I wrote music for school orchestra and um, I played in competitions and stuff. But at school, no one sort of said you could have a career in music. And also my kind of social circles, it wasn't necessarily like other people were playing in bands or, uh, when I was growing up. So I didn't understand that side of things either. Uh, but so I ended up studying architecture once, once I finished school because I loved maths and art. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was like a good combination of, of those two. And then... Uh, you, I went to Melbourne University and they do, they require you to do a compulsory year out in the workforce. Okay. And my sort of late night brainwave was that, well, there's going to be so many people trying to get jobs in Melbourne. I'm going to go to another country and get a job there. Be because... a bigger, go into a, a different pond, so yes. to speak. Yeah. Yes. So I, yeah, I moved to Ireland for a year. Okay. And I got. I didn't like, know this. Yeah, I got a job for at an architecture firm as an in, essentially as an in, a paid intern. Gotcha. Uh, and the woman who hired me was very lovely, and also incredibly tolerant of, you know, I had, this is the first time I'd ever lived away from home. I had was suddenly meeting uh, loads of musicians and comedians and creatives and 
drinking a lot mm -hmm. and partying. And, yeah, experiencing being young <laughs> in the world. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was sort of suddenly let free. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's almost like I can't remember the actual working in an architecture firm aspect of that year. <laughs> Went by quick. Yes. <laughs> but I remember that I didn't have much money, uh, but that there, neither did anyone else. But it, it was the sort of tail end of what was called the Celtic Tiger in Dublin, where like a load of uh, Irish people had come back from where they'd travelled because there was sort of a big economic boom. So okay. there was like a, a real sort of hub of activity and energy that was going Almost on. Almost like a renaissance thing. Yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, but there was like, because Dublin's so small, there was a great sort of community of musicians and creatives. And kind of unbeknownst to me, uh, well, not really, but... Uh, so basically I knew Nick Seymour from Crowded House and he happened to live round the corner from me in Dublin. And so I became friends with him and his partner and they sort of took me under their wing and obviously they knew a lot of musicians, you know, U2 and Hot House Flowers. And so I was hanging out with all these people. I really didn't know. Were you hanging were. out with U2? I went to a party where, uh, for uh, Bono's wife. Okay. Um, actually, this might have been before. This is quite funny, actually. We sort of, uh, we're kind of going off on a bit of a tangent, but. I love it. Uh, yeah, I went to um, Bono's wife's 40th birthday party. And nice. I was very, I was so young and just so eager and so excited. You just walked right up to Bono. You were like, hey, stuck your hand in his face. No, <laughs> I was sitting down. I was talking to this guy. I was sort of like on the edge of a couch at this club. And there was another guy sitting next to me, sitting on a chair. And I just, I was like, so what do you do? And he's like, I play in a, in a band. I play guitar in a band. I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like I, you know, I want to, I want to work in rock and roll yeah. or I want to, I want to be like Britney Spears. And mm. I chewed this poor guy's ear off for about 40 minutes about my aspirations to somehow work in the music industry. And again, like very naive about what that would You're have just meant. just unloading on him. Yeah. And as we're leaving the party, Nick goes, you know who that was, don't you? And I said, no. And I said, but why was he wearing a beanie inside? <gasps> we all know who it is now. <laughs> it's the edge. It's the edge. You're just chatting up. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Oh, but there were so many horrifying moments like that where I just... <laughs> yeah, that's when you think back on it, you're like in the shower and you just like shiver. Yeah, like, I oh, yeah. I wish I could redo that one, you know? <laughs> know. But that's great. We all have that story. So yeah. we, call that, we call that being a punisher. Yeah, right. You know, where you just... Talk and I talk was and a talk. massive punisher. <laughs> I didn't know who he was though. Could have been anyone. So you do your stint in Ireland. Yes. And so this was where I suddenly got like I was starting to see live bands. Mm -hmm. Um and there were a lot of producers who were working there. There was a producer who I met called Flood, and he was working on U2's album How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb. And again, I didn't know what a producer was. You know, we were going to dinner parties or clubs or... And I was very young. I was, like, the youngest person. And I don't know how they tolerated me. I was such a little dweeb. <laughs> Just, like, a little hangers-on. Can I come? And they're like, OK. Uh, I love it. And, you know, I had sort of stupid... Um, dinner party conversations about how I loved music in 6-8. Oh, just... And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But everyone... And I think I said I liked Nickelback because a lot of their songs were in 6-8. <laughs> oh, my God! And Flood never let me live that one down. I have since revised my opinion on that. Uh, yeah, so, look, there's a lot of embarrassing well, stories. Well, I on Nickelback, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so throughout... Throughout that year, I got to know Flood, mm -hmm. and uh, I there was and Nick had a studio there as well, and he uh, one of his friends who was an engineer, Tom Rixton, he was recording Elastica, and I had met Elastica out one night, and uh, we were all getting drunk, and um, I said, oh, "I'd love to play piano on your record." Of course, thinking. You're just throwing it out there. Well, just being a massive opportunist. Yes. Assuming they were going to say no. Yeah. But, you know, I just I just I'm going to take a shot here, yeah. I asked everyone if I could do anything the whole time. Uh, do you recommend this now? No. 
just read the room <laughs> a little better. Uh, anyway, t- Tom, the engineer, said, okay. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, my God. You didn't expect them to say yes? No. Uh, but I, th- I thought, well, I could either sort of decline or uh-huh. I could do something. And uh, anyway, so I went to bed quite drunk and in my dreams formulated this piece of piano music and just somehow through pure miracle walking into that studio, I started playing it. And there was Mew and Justin and Paul Jones, John Paul Jones, Paul Jones, I can't remember his name, but I think he now runs Rough Trade in London. Um, And uh, Justine wasn't there, so it was just Mew and Justin. And uh, yeah, so there's, I think they were all kind of ready to ridicule me, but I started playing this sort of piece of music and they're like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And you started crying. What? Uh, yeah. So you wrote a, a piece in your dreams and yeah. then just went in there and played I know. It. Sometimes like these random things happen. Like, yeah. I that w- does happen sometimes though in music where like, it's like, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and they really loved it. And, Amazing. Um, it, was a, it was sort of like a ballady kind of piece of music. There was no, it was an instrumental. I think you would also call that a... Um, defining moment, wouldn't you? Like when that happened, did that kind of solidify like, uh uh-oh, I'm not an architect anymore, I am. (sighs) Well, I think I wasn't really ever an architect. I I was always trying to find avenues and opportunities to do something with music. And I always thought I would be a songwriter or a performer, Mm. but I can't sing and I don't write very good songs. (laughs) So- That's an issue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I kind of knew, but I enjoyed the process. I liked analyzing music. Uh, so, yeah, so this happened and then they apparently played it to the record label who loved the piece of music and then Flood happened to hear it and I think I'd met him at this point but sort of very passingly. I'll tell you about how I met Flood as well in a minute. Uh, and he was really impressed. And so but at the end of the year, I think we were having a dinner party for my, me going home and I said, so why don't you produce me? And he's like... I won't, uh, but if you're serious about, you know, being involved in the music industry and you're considering doing what I do, it's a massive sacrifice. So mm. my advice to you is to go back and finish your degree. I love it. He got real with you. Yeah, he did. And finish your degree, but go and join some bands, write music for other people, explore what it, all these kind of avenues, because if you want to be a producer, it's a big commitment and a massive sacrifice and it's not about you. Like, if you want something where you're the spotlight, this is an idiot. Mm. He's wrong about that, <laughs> eventually, because he loves the spotlight. But mm. it's but in order, the process itself is not about you. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's a tough thing to take and a tough thing to learn. Especially if, when you're younger. Yes. Yeah. So if you want to be kind of the star, you, that you're is, in the wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've had many lessons about this, by the way. Uh, yeah, so I took kind of heed of his advice mm-hmm. and I went back and I finished my degree and he kind of, he stayed in contact and was very encouraging and, and a true mentor in that sense. I, I joined a couple of bands and I remember my first ever gig at a pub. He rang me up and I was talking to him in the bathrooms and I was like really nervous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so nervous, in fact, that I rang him after and I said, they turned off my vocal mic because I kept trying to make jokes in between songs. Oh, um, any footage of this later on? Gosh, no, I'd love to see that. No, I don't. Th- I thank God I don't think the camera quality on phones was that good back then. <laughs> this is in about 2002, the year mm. I got back from Ireland. Um, so, yeah, and then we... Well, so I'd, I'd done another two and a half, two years of architecture and he rang up and he says, right, I've got a position for you. And I said, well, I've just been invited to, to do my master's and I've just got a job, so give me another year and a half. And so he hired another guy, Andy Savers, and then a year and a half later, I, or about two years later, I moved over to London and became the assistant to Andy Savers, essentially. And this is... This is the vacuum story. Yeah, this is starting at the bottom. Like, below the bottom. <laughs> the bottom of Listen the bottom. up, people. 
uh, he, he, it was never explained to me exactly what I was going to be doing. So in my head, uh, I thought I would be suddenly walking into a, a studio and producing records. I didn't know what that meant, but I thought me and Flood you, side by walk, side. Yes, I was, I'm walking here and being charged. <laughs> yeah. So I got off the plane, walked into the studio uh, to say hi to Flood. Luckily, Flood was on his own. He was working with AHA. And he said, uh, he, was, he was playing a track and I said, uh, that snare needs more reverb. And he just looked at me and was like, that is not why you are here. And Andy walked into the room and sort of handed me a vacuum cleaner and he was like, go get, on. <laughs> get to cleaning and yeah. organising. Yeah. Yeah. The fun stuff about starting in a studio. I uh, know. Oh, God, my mind is just like swirling with like embarrassing stories. <laughs> but all, the way I actually met Flood, and I think this is kind of, uh, perhaps it was endearing at the time, but I met him at a Nick Cave concert in Dublin at the Olympia and Nick had invited me and he had a box. Um, so there was like a bunch of us like crammed in and Nick was singing the weeping song and I hadn't heard it before, I'd heard it before and I thought the lyrics were different and I turned to Flood and I said, isn't it funny that he's singing about breakfast cereal? Because I thought he was singing this is the wheat big song, the song to which we eat. And Flood just looked at me and started laughing. And then we sort of ended up having this kind of wild night at a bar called Lily's. And I think kind of, he just sort of laughed, found me very amusing or something. And our friendship was kind of solidified yeah. there. I think, uh, you know, to jump in real quick, when you're a guy like Flood or a producer who's in a room mm -hmm. for most of his day, yeah. you're trying to find people that you enjoy being around yeah. that can bring some positive energy and some bring something to the table so it makes your day feel a little bit less like just you know confined to this screen in a room and yeah maybe he was like this she'll be fun to have around <laughs> i think it definitely what 21 i was totally happy positive fun vibes yeah the whole time yes also just being living in another country and yeah, first time living away from home and there was a sense of freedom and excitement and kind of brand new world and oh, independence. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it, what, that was like a very defining year. That was like my sliding doors kind of mm -hmm. moment because mm -hmm. had I not done that, I wouldn't be in this position. Had I not Amazing. had been fortunate enough to have met Nick Seymour and he, him being supportive and him introducing me to Flood. I mean, these people didn't have to do those things. Um, and I don't know whether they thought that, I don't think, you know, it wasn't to lead anywhere, but I definitely have have those people to thank for yes. kind of- Getting you started. Opening the doors and showing me these kind of opportunities. And, uh, you know, even just sitting in Nick's studio and watching him, you know, cause he's a producer as well. And just watching him get excited about things that that definitely piqued piqued my interest, but it was just very sort of little small snippets, hints, right. not, at all understanding the kind of mechanics of, of how yes. a studio operates or... You, it would be seeing like a really good take happen yeah. and be like, wow, that's I remember, that's I remember he, he, had a, he, in, he had sort of a warehouse apartment and it, there was a, a big metal door and he heard it bang and he goes, oh, I must sample that. And I, at that time I was like, what? I mean, now every day I'm like... Yeah, that sounds good. Yes. That sounds good. Let's yeah, throw we a still mic do that. It. Like yeah. this turtle shell sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's sort of become a running joke. Uh huh. But then you put it in the song, put a little something on it, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like, man, that sounds amazing. I mean, yesterday in the studio, uh, we had a very overly compressed mic on the piano, and Rob was just moving it around to put it in place. And I said, just keep doing that. Keep doing yeah. that, and it sounds like a like the most amazing sort of kick drum, soft kind of, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah. I love that. I love when those little kind of magic things happen. Because they're, it's not, you, you can't force that stuff to happen. It either kind of presents itself or it doesn't, right? Yeah. But it is funny how you've totally turned into a sound nerd where everything you hear is like, oh, that could go. <laughs> I was definitely trying to fight the nerd nerdiness in me for ages. But I, I mean, I ultimately am. You kind Gotta of have embrace to, it. You have to be. Yeah. And the the 
the sort of techie side of stuff, obviously it interests me, but it's it's sort of very much secondary to kind of capturing emotion and feeling. Interesting. How so? You know, how did you start uh, acquiring your techie skills, though? Because obviously we all feel like we have great ideas yeah. about what can happen in a yeah. song and possibilities, and it's all up here, ethereal yeah. stuff, until you bring it into the room and you dial it in yeah. on the board and on the gear. So how did you start? Is this just, because you didn't go to a no. recording school or anything like that. You no. just started the School of Hard Knocks yeah. every day, watching them do it in the studio. And then, like, at what point do they allow you to start running the board or running the Pro Tools session and that kind of stuff. I mean, the, it's it was very kind of poignant that Flood, you know, me saying, oh, that snare needs more reverb and him saying that's not why you're here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so true. Anyone can say that, you know, the back of the room, like yeah, backseat driver. Totally. Great idea. Yeah. Why don't I think of that? Uh, but there's the process of or the process that I went through to learn, what I gained from that most of all was how to be in a studio, the dynamics of a studio, managing people and awesome. personalities. Awesome. So the tech side, that actually didn't come till much later. What I did become really good at eventually, because I sucked initially, I was the worst assistant ever. Because I want, you know, I'd come from working in an architecture firm with, you know, having sort of assistants and people working under me, to to suddenly being or having to be completely invisible. And I, you know, my poor little Leo ego didn't know how to handle that. I You're wanted like, how come to, no one's listening to me? Well, no, I just was like, how come no one's even noticing me? I'm I'm completely invisible. But once I sort of like clicked on, well, that's it's because I'm here to play a supportive role. Mm -hmm. I'm here to make tea and, you know, move yeah. someone's ashtray or, you know, buy, go and get their food. That's or, so good. Yeah. Your ego has to take a back seat to yeah. the process, yeah. right? You know, and I, like you were talking about, I feel like a lot of musicians and people working in studios have to figure this dynamic out of, you know, how do I get out of the way more so yeah. that this thing can happen? Because it is a chemistry thing, Completely, right? And yeah. it's a, each project, you have to build this chemistry and flow and if you have the wrong person sometimes they can be you know like what are you talking like why are you speaking up right now we're in the yeah. middle of doing this thing like it is a very precious yeah, you have thing. To, you have to be able to adapt and understand people and personalities to be able to allow them to be as creative and so good and free yes. in order to get the performances or for them to deliver some sort of emotional message or yeah. just anything that helps them kind of realise what they want to achieve. Yeah, and, and you started to understand that first. Yes, I think so. So I, you know, I, I remember asking Flood, like, what does it, what does this do, pointing to a compressor, like sort of two weeks in, and he's like... You'll, you know, that's You'll not, get there one day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I was, like, so frustrated because I wanted to know straight away. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's sort of maybe six months in, Flood... So the first place I worked at is uh, a place called Assault and Battery and Flood and Alan Mulder have a mix room there. Gotcha. So that was the first place I worked at. And then Flood worked at a few other studios and I just sort of followed him around. And then he went off to do Killers Samstown and he gave me the keys to his other little studio, which was called The Boy's Bedroom at the time, which was like this amazing old converted dairy uh, barn, which was sort of in a quadrangle with a bunch of other studios and a whole lot of other producers. Mm -hmm. And he gave me the keys and he says, good luck. Like, just, just turn you loose in there. Just threw me in the deep end. And it was such a mess. And I, he, a lot of his friends or, who were producers would come and use it. So... I just started ripping the whole thing apart and rebuilding everything. And that's kind of how I learnt. I mean, what every th single thing that Flood did, just like kind of feeding me to the wolves or like just throwing me into situations that I just thought I would... Well, do you think he was being... Was he being intentional in any of this stuff or was he just kind of like, I'm busy, like, here, here's the keys, get out of my face? I have a feeling this is these were situations that he was put in himself. And it's at the time I was like why are you being so mean? 
But he wasn't. I mean, this is this is how you learn. You know, you can't. It's. I ca- I'm not going to be able to sit there and explain to someone, well, this is how a compressor works, or this is how this modular synth works. You, yes. You kind of have to figure it out yeah. for yourself and use it to the way that you want to use it. There's a uh, a friend of mine, a producer, uh, Marta. She just put on her um, on her Instagram sort of beautiful thought, which is use your machines as instruments, which I think is like, that's such a lovely sentiment because that's how I feel. Like these these bits of kind of bulky equipment, are, even though they're not, they are, you know, I use them as instruments. Yes. Uh, I love sort of twiddling knobs yes, to you kind do. of get a sound. What it, what's that thing that's always hooked up? You know, the Echoplex? Um, the, the, the Echo Six. Yeah. yeah. You just like dial that in, start putting it on some vocals and like start turning those knobs. I know. And, you know magic always happens. I need a few more tricks. <laughs> I love that. I mean, we've always gotten amazing results from that. Yeah. So. But that's awesome. Yeah, he, he definitely started to make you understand the process. And I think there's a lot of guys that are like, oh, I'll buy a bunch of nice gear. I'll build myself a soundproof room and everything else will happen. But he started to equip you with the, you know, emotional and mental tools that you need to do this for a long time. Because this is like emotionally grueling. Is it not sometimes? It totally is. And And at the time it was horrible and I didn't understand and I would never put someone else through that. I think times have changed hmm. and expectations have changed. But he... Can you, can you touch on that a little? Uh, it, he called it sort of the war of attrition. It was almost sort of being cruel to be kind. So good. To... to Weed out the weaklings. Yes. Like if you... I mean, I think he thought that I would last six months. <laughs> and... Through my sort of pure kind of stubbornness and determination, I just, it was the worst experience of my life, those first sort of six months to a year. I was miserable. I had no friends. I didn't really know anyone. I was not earning you're, any money. You lonely. Yeah, I felt really lonely. And then I was coming into the studio and people would get cross with me and I wouldn't understand what I was doing wrong, but I knew that I was doing something wrong. I mean, it was devastating. Yeah. I like went and cried in the bathroom every day. Uh, but in, obviously in hindsight, it's made me so tough because now I can... Now you're adaptable. Yeah, I can deal with other people's crises. Yes, and, you can. And You deal with ours. Yes. <laughs> I can deal with people being assholes. Yeah. Not because they're assholes, but because making records is very intense. It is. Especially if you're, if you're trying to make something really good you know, it's hard. Yeah. And it shouldn't be a cakewalk, right? And there's gonna be these sort of pressure things that happen from time to time. And I think once, you know, that experience, you're not scared anymore. I've, you know, I see it happen. Like there's times where I'm, you know, can you hit this hard? No, I can't hit this thing. I'm like, I'm in the middle of my drum takes and I'm stressed out because I want it to be the best thing possible. And you know, you know how to like read that stuff now yeah. through years of going through these processes with artists. Yeah. So a lot of people, the productivity ends right there because yeah. it turns into, you know, it can blow up into yeah. to a, a thing, you know? So you, you, you are experienced now with like the psychology as well, you know, of how people work and what they act like when they're under intense creative pressure. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's sort of, the most fundamental aspect about making records. Sometimes, yeah, I can like read, read through the glass. I can read through in your eyes, like whether you're into it or mm-hmm, not. Mm-hmm. And if, whether we need to move on to another idea. Yeah. And Instead also, of just like beating the thing yeah, to I know. death, you know. Can, we, can you just play the snare drum on every three for six minutes? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. But you're obliging. <laughs> now, you know, I've, I've also learned some things over the years, hopefully. Um, so awesome. So, so I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to rush this along at all, no. but I also want to, there's, there's other, you know, there's other things I want to get you to talk about because you have really, really good stuff to say okay. about this. So, so you basically. Oh, do you want me to finish the story about it? I do. It? Yeah. So. So this was, so I moved to London in 2005, so about around sort of December, 
Um, Oh, Jen, oh God, actually I can't really remember the timeline. Okay. And I'm not sure what the order was, but basically Flood, this little studio that he had was next to his management company who managed other producers. Gotcha. It was called 140DB. That managed a producer called Ben Hillier. Ben Hillier was doing a project uh, with a band called The Future Heads up in Scarborough, which cool. is in York in England. I actually went and saw The Future Heads in Atlanta with Andy when really? we were like 19, which wow. is crazy. It's ringing a bell. But anyway, sorry. Sorry. So uh, they were looking, f- again, this is like me just trying to bang a chance. So I had nothing to do. I'd sort of cleaned up the studio. I'd like read all the manuals. I'd, you know, made it a space that people could now use and it would function and people would know, know where things were. So I'd like walk into the, to the management office and they were looking for Ben, an assistant and a chef for, I think it was three months or six weeks or whatever. It was a long period of time, I think, at that time. The problem was they couldn't find an assistant who wanted to go the whole time, nor could they find a chef. Um, and I just chef? Kept, when I did d- we get one of those? I just kept going, pick me, pick me. Yeah. I'll go, I'll do yeah. it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Anyway, the day before, they couldn't find anyone who would be willing to kind of go into the middle of nowhere and make a record. And live there. And live there, essentially. So I said, I'll do it and I'll do both. And they were like, well, there's literally no one else left. We've asked everyone. When you say both, you're not talking about the chef thing, too. Yeah. You said you would go cook? I learned how to cook on that session. I learned about microphones and the names and I learned how to cook. And Ben Hillier was brilliant. So obviously my confidence was shot, uh, but... I had these sort of little defining experiences that helped me grow my confidence again, but also people took time to explain what I was doing wrong, what I shouldn't do, what is wrong. But what I made, what I lacked in kind of knowledge, I made up for with just... Ambition. and Well, enthusiasm, which is all a producer can ask for, I think, is someone who is interested and keen, not Huge. someone who's like... Yes, trying to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just someone who's there with you. Absolutely. Uh, So for, yeah, for however long that project was, I would get up in the morning, I would uh, start baking potatoes for lunch, I would go and uh, set up all the microphones in in all the barns where we had amps and because these were very expensive microphones, it was in the middle of winter and we didn't want to leave them out overnight, so I'd go and set those up. I'd go and clean up the studio, which was in a another barn uh glamorous so sexy glamorous record making (laughs) but i'd be up before everyone else and then we'd have breakfast and then i'd be able to in the morning uh you know go and sit in the studio and just watch and help yep and absorb yeah and then i would go back into the the main house in the kitchen and prepare lunch or start preparing dinner. And my, I rang my mum and I'm like, I've got to cook food for like seven people every night. What am I going to do? And some were vegetarians. She, she taught me all these sort of great recipes that were quick and easy to put mm-hmm. into an aga that you could like let cook, to, how to make yes. soups, lasagnas, yeah. Stuff that casseroles. doesn't need to be like attended to. Yeah. yeah. Things with root vegetables, just... Amazing. Uh, did they like your cooking? Yes. You did okay? I did great. There you go. One night, I, or for three nights, I cooked for 11 people. And, but I really enjoy, I enjoyed the challenge, it turned out. See? You had the right attitude. Yeah. Instead of like being, you know, why do I have to do this the whole time? Yeah. You're just like, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill it at the cooking and yeah. learn as much as I can here. Yeah. Exactly. I was very grateful for the opportunity. That's awesome. But also what I didn't realise was that the... The producer uh, community is very small as well, and they all talk. Mm. So if you're a good assistant, even though if you think no one pays attention to you... Listen up, people. (laughs) They will let... You know, someone will say, how was she? She was easy to work with. Yeah, so the report back to Flood was very glowing, and he was very happy... Um, So when he came back, he was impressed, and then I think we ended up doing White Chalk together... But it's still his sort of little war of attrition was going on. I think I did... There was one day he got really... He never got really cross with me, but I think it was all the little annoying things that I'd been doing over the years and they just built up. But he was... I was at the studio at 10. They were supposed to be there at 10 or 11, but he didn't turn up till 4. So I was, like, sitting at the computer teaching myself how to play, uh, how to press record. 
playing bass. Just filling in time, basically. I can't play bass, by the way. I was just playing with the E string. One note, over and over again. Uh, and he walked in and he was furious and I didn't understand why he was furious. His point was basically, it doesn't matter what time we turn up, you have to be ready to go. You know, even if we've said that we're going to be here four hours ago, you need, you're the assistant, you need to be there ready, not in the middle of recording your solo album. I was like, I was sort of devastated because I wasn't recording my solo album. I was you were just, trying to learn. I was trying to learn, yeah. but he was right. You mm-hmm. know, it's sort of like if you hear the door open, put down that bass and pretend like you were just cleaning, Doing something, cleaning yeah. the desk. And also, you, fortunately, you didn't get your feelings hurt to the point where you were like, you know, so a lot of people... I did get my feelings cave. hurt. Well, you, you, everyone, to get somewhere in life, you're going to get your feelings hurt, yeah. right? No, and, absolutely. And yeah. so you have to, like, take the, you take the lashings yeah. and you learn something from it and you keep moving forward or like a lot of people do, you bail and go back to architecture school and you decided, no, I'm going I'm to keep learning. It was sort of, there was a, a point I had gone where I could, there was no sort of returning back. Yep. Beyond the point of no return. Uh, which, you know, there was no, there was no option. There was no plan B. Mm-hmm. This was it. This was going to have to be it. Yeah. I was out of the loop of architecture. I was, I despite crying every day and feeling like I was massively failing and no one sort of telling me all the things that I was doing wrong, there was something about it that was incredibly, it was sort of a new challenge. I, yeah, I was like broke. I couldn't go to go and socialise. I, I think I was working seven days a week and at that time often 18 hours a day, if not, you know, not sleeping at all for a few days, kind of just doing everything that I could. Uh, looking back, I don't know how I did that, actually. <laughs> you were young. I was young. <laughs> uh, so, there, yeah, Flood and I made a few records together. I assisted Flood in a few records. Uh, and then um, I worked with a few other producers who, again, would sort of teach me wonderful lessons. A producer called Dimitri Tikovoy, Dave McCracken, Danton Supple. Um, Steve Osborne, and they were all like, you know, they were, Steve Osborne especially was someone who would f- fire assistant the first day pretty much. He never liked working with anyone. And I remember on the first day I was making him a cup of tea and I was cutting a ba- open a bag of sugar and I accidentally sliced my finger off. And uh, I just was like, shit, shit, shit. I don't want to like cause a scene. So I just wrapped my hand in a tea towel and like hid it behind my my back as I passed him the um, as I passed him his cup of tea, and then I think I like had to go outside because I was about to pass out, and then it, t- towards the end of the day he was like, you know what's wrong? And I was sort of like, and he goes, oh I hate the sight of blood, and I was like it's okay, it's okay, and he goes I can't believe you kind of kept that from me. But that spoke pro- probably volumes to him. That, I guess, you know, yeah. I mean, I like, this girl's tough, man. Yeah, but also unnecessary, but also it's so bizarre, like that kind of mentality that as an assistant you do, it's just not about you at all. And I feel for other assistants. Yes, because I do Because I know how that feels. Yeah. But to be like, you're sort of on the outside looking in on this process yeah. that looks so awesome yeah. and magical and all of these things are like, man, I'd love to, I'd love to taste that. I'd love to be a part of that. It's like, no, you know, five years from now, you'll yeah. get to start doing this kind of stuff. It's very, it can be very alienating. And it's kind of sometimes kind of thankless. Yes. But I know what they're thinking about because it's, you know, like Dal, our assistant right. at Echo Mountain, who is brilliant, you know, he just seems cool, calm and collected. But I know exactly like the little freakouts that he's having, you know, oh, my God, I shouldn't have done that or, you know, but that's the kind of the right, the right thing to think. Absolutely. Because it helps you later down the line. Yep. I mean, we love Dal. Dal, if you ever hear this, yeah. man, you were the man. Yes. Um, we love, you know, we love the guys that just stand back there, yeah, <laughs> quietly, and do everything right. Yes. He was <laughs> he was brilliant because he was always there and and ready. And I'd be mm-hmm. like Dal, and he, I'd look, and he'd be standing right next to me, knowing that I needed him. And he knew it was coming up yeah. too. So yeah. That's awesome. So you know, you basically put a lot of incubation time in. 
yeah. with all of these different producers. Yes. Manage to not get your feelings hurt to the point that you, you know, crumble. And, yeah. And I yeah. fucked up a lot as well. <laughs> but they only ever had to tell me once not to do it again. Yeah. That's a big part too. Like yeah. Learn the lesson, put it, you know, and fold it into what you're doing and then move forward. Um, but the, when, the, the shift, I yeah. think, um, to anticipating yeah. what you're going to ask. The when did you start working on stuff? Well, the, Solo. The turning point was when I worked with Alan and Alan had sort of felt like my education had been uh, not as strong as it could be from the from a technical point of view. And okay. Alan Mulder is an amazing mix engineer yes, yes. and producer. So I had heard stories about Alan being like really scary. Intense and personality. Not, no, not intense, but he has very high standards. Okay. Uh, and, you know, he and very high expectations and a particular way of working. But I felt like I'd had so much experience. Like I'd, been, I'd worked with Kanye West, I worked with Mr. Hudson, Kelly Rowland, uh, Boy George, a lot of sort of high profile people. Definitely big names. <clears throat> so by the time I kind of went to him, I'd had some experience. I'd been engineering, I'd been doing, oh, vocal engineering for like placebo. Um, yeah, so there was, there was things that I had to offer, but there were massive holes in my education. So when I started <clears throat> to work with him and I knew that he understood this, I was like, these are the things that I know, use me for those, these are the things I don't, but you only have to tell me once. And he was great and he took the time. I mean, really simple things like a patch bay. I just, it was so foreign to me. I didn't understand that. Uh, even though I'd been working in a studio for a long Years. time. And I'd been using a patch bay for ages. I was just, can you just explain? Like, uh, send and return. I didn't, I didn't understand, was it sending to or, or, or returning to? Like, it can be confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he took the time to do that um, and just, uh, you know, signal paths and mm-hmm. uh, gain structure and... All, the, they, all these cool the kind of... technical things yeah. about it all. Yes, but he, he, I think, we had a really good working relationship. I liked systems. He liked systems. I enforced some new systems. Um, I, I really enjoyed working for him and he, he was very respectful and very encouraging mm-hmm. and very supportive. And I felt very supported by mm-hmm. him. So it kind of like lifted my yeah. confidence you, a lot It was like more. a growth spurt yeah. time. Massive, yeah. massive. Uh, and also he, he's a, was, he kind of taught me like, uh, when you're working with a team and you, you've got a client there, you don't berate your team in front of the client. Things like that, just, he was, you know, so, you're my peeps, you're my team. We need to cre- sort of create a united front. Mm. Um, so he was good at chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. He was good at that working relationship. And so if he ever got offered uh, projects that perhaps the budget was quite small, uh, he would give them to me and then he would oversee it. So it was kind of like having my homework marked. Are we, on, are we running out of time? Ah, okay. Uh, and then just through sort of that process, I built relationships with bands. At, the, at that particular time, was, we worked with Foles, Interpol, Ronnie Venucci, Death Cab for Cutie, Blonde Redhead. Oh, so, I mean, yeah. we worked on so many kind of great records. Stay busy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but then there were like other little side projects that I'd do and I worked in a little room by his side and he would, you know, come in and listen and... Uh, and then through that, other bands were asking me to produce their records, the next records or whatever, or mix their next records. And totally. there was a point where Alan was like, okay, it's time for you to leave because you're doing less work for me. And we'd started training up another another guy uh, to replace me anyway. But I didn't want to leave. I loved the kind of safety of sitting in a room next to Alan. Yeah. I'm now just down the hall, <laughs> but it's not the same. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so I guess there were a few sort of little changes and I, I think my first ever project was for, uh, he was not a signed artist, he was an older man and it was through a recommendation by a friend and it was kind of the biggest budget I've ever had for an album and 
it was also the place that I could, it was not, it was a self-release thing uh, and it was a place where I could kind of make all the mistakes that I needed to make without it. Without a label yeah. breathing down your neck. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the, that was the turning point. I mean, over the years I'd recorded other bands and mixed stuff, you know. Yeah. M- m- very tiny little budgets, you know, dipped my toe in, but that was kind of the first record. Where you were like holding the reins on yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. And from there on out, you just keep going, right? Keep taking whatever projects, you know, that pay and you sort of navigate the business side and start figuring that all out. Um, but I might be, you know, if I'm wrong, you know, correct me here, but wouldn't you say on the opposite side of all of this experience that mixing is kind of where your, maybe your heart and your, and your most focus, would you call yourself a mixer more than an engineer? Or it seems like mixing is really where you well, light up the most, well, you know? Well, that's in, in probably in relation to you. I mean, I don't know. I've, Alan had always, he'd you know, he'd ask me, what is it that you want to do? And I said, well, I feel like I want to do a bit of writing. I want to be a producer. I want to do all this. And he said, he said just for me, imagine that you're a mixer. Through, through doing that, through having that kind of discipline, it made me understand how to finish projects, basically, mm-hmm. because I'd never had that experience okay. either. But I think that's made me a better producer because I know how I want it to sound when, right. it, when it's finished. While you're making it. Yeah. yeah. I, know, I can see the, or hear the finished overall picture. Uh, so I love, I love mixing and I love producing and when I'm producing and then mixing the, uh, the project that I've produced, it's still part of the production process for yeah. me. It's sort of, it's sort of an ongoing, uh, you know, intertwining Yeah. It, does, it seems like intimidating to me though. Like when do you get to this point where you're like, yeah, I'm capable of mixing a record and listening to the sonics of it all and going, yeah, I'm the person that's going to go in and balance all these things and make sure the right things are, are coming to the front, all of that. So I mean, it's a very massive part of the record making process that mm-hmm. happens right at the very end. And you can literally tank a record yeah. if you mix it poorly so it's a massive responsibility and it, I don't, uh, you know, how did you start feeling like that, that confidence level of like, yeah, I could take this on. This is going to be, this is going to be a strong suit for me. <laughs> I don't know. I, and I never thought I was particularly good at it, but people seem to like my mixes yeah. and I really enjoy We it. like them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We like them a lot. I enjoy that process. I Mixing is almost a, a kind of holiday away from producing albums because totally. the, I'm by myself. Yeah, you don't have to listen to the annoying artists. Sometimes Just it gets a little, a little lonely. <laughs> It'd be fun if you and Princey were there. Just yeah, like you wouldn't get ba- anything done, though. Just in the background, just making jokes <laughs> while I was doing vocal rides. Uh, yeah, I think all of these things I've sort of just stumbled and fell into and, and have discovered that I enjoy it just mm-hmm. as much as I enjoyed the last part of the process. I mean, I, lo- I, st- I still love engineering for other producers. I haven't done that for a while, but like being able to kind of be sonically creative without bearing the responsibility. For sure. Uh, but mixing, I also, if I'm mixing someone else's production, there's a, I have, I feel like I have freedom because it's, I can hear what their intention is and I just try and expand on that intention. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't try and reinvent the wheel. But if they want the wheel reinvented, that's also, like, mm-hmm. exciting to me as well. But with this... Get that echo sex pedal out and just start <laughs> going nuts. <laughs> but with this part of the process, we're recording it kind of how we want it to sound at mm-hmm. the end. Like, the drums sound great and if we, you know, we can colour them and treat them, but it's the kind of essence and the identity of the record has been achieved already just through that. That's the hardest bit. Yeah. I don't have to fix anything at the end. That's really important to me. I have to, I, all I need to do is enhance stuff. I mean, the kick already sounds killer. Mm-hmm. I don't need to EQ that shit mm-hmm. to make it punch. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, you're kind of a multifaceted, you know, producer, mixer. I don't, I don't know if you do any kind of mastering stuff, but 
at this point, um, you know, I kind of want to, I guess, fast forward a little bit so yeah. we, we can get a little talking about what we're working on right mm-hmm. now in um, Manchester has just gotten back from Echo Mountain in mm-hmm. Asheville. And w- w- how far through the record would you say we are right now? About 40%? Yeah. It's debatable. Yeah. But the beautiful thing about this process is there's a lot of minds working on this record. Big time. Uh, a lot of good minds. A lot of great and brilliant minds yeah. who I feel very fortunate to work with, including your good self. Aw, vice versa. Uh, and the process is going to take as long as it takes. As long as it takes. And I like, I mean, this is one of the first times where I haven't felt that kind of time pressure. The thing is it might get done soon, way sooner than we anticipated because the, we have allowed ourselves that, that time, Extra. that mental space. Yeah. Like just to do stuff, like this, this, this. I mean, even just recording guitars, like the tones that we're getting are gorgeous. And if, but if we're sort of not feeling it, we just put it down as an idea, and then you start to kind of live with it, and that's mm. something interesting in itself. But we know maybe later down the line that that's something that we can be that can be replaced. Absolutely. Or after the, vo- you know, Andy sort of laid all his beautiful vocals on, is that tone kind of working with his voice or mm-hmm. whatever? Uh, you know there's a freedom to kind of try a lot of different parts and sounds and uh, just, I don't know, this sort of beautiful patchwork of, of sonics is kind of coming yeah. together because there we have given ourselves this sense of freedom. And I mean, having a, t- having a, a schedule and a timeline and, a, and an end date in sight is obviously important. important. Restrictions are good because it, spurs on creativity but we put enough pressure on ourselves anyway we're you know we're massive overthinkers yes so just parking one of those things has mm-hmm. been uh been an absolute dream and uh, the working process and the flow like we've really enjoyed ourselves it's been so good I we know. keep we keep making the joke like when's the I know. you know when is the mat when's the shoe gonna drop and we like run into that thing but i i, I feel like maybe this is the payoff four years of us as a band working on our process, yeah. you as a producer working on your process, yeah. having Ethan Gruska involved, who's our other producer and was just an amazing part of the, like you were talking about with Alan, how he likes to build a team. Mm-hmm. It's never felt as team building yeah. as it has this time around where it was just like, man, we didn't waste any time. There was always getting something getting done, whoever was working on it was doing their best, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody else was able to enjoy knowing that the process was working and that we were getting really good. And it's kind of amazing. It keeps transferring to the next part of the process. Like you said, with the guitar stuff, it's like, why is this, why are things happening like on the first couple tries and being awesome and sounding right, as opposed to slaving away over 12 options going like, which one of these minute things is better, we you know? Have, we have done that a bit, but I think it's, I think <coughs> because we all know each other, mm-hmm. there's a trust there, but there is this, we've taken this little bit of pressure away yes. from the back of our brain. So I think just psychologically that pressure being removed, it makes us feel sort of more relaxed and less kind of, focusing on minutiae or stuff that actually doesn't exist. Right. So if we enjoy it and this, we love the sound of it, well, then it's... That's good. Then we're it's good. Going, then we're on the right track. Not, like, question it, mm-hmm. which I... I mean, I have a tendency to do mm-hmm. that. Well, I haven't explored 27 exactly. other options. So, well, I, you know, is this actually the right one? But, but I think also having Andy and Rob, uh, you know, involved in the production side and having that load kind of taken away yeah. from me a little bit. Yeah, if he's, you know, you're kind of looking for his his emotional response yeah. to it and if he's lighting up and yeah. you're getting, like, smiles and all that, then yeah. we know we're on the right track, well, you know? Well, but also now he'll just go, yeah, he'll like it or yeah. he doesn't. Yeah. So there's like, there, there's, like, a free-flowing kind of communication going on. Absolutely. But the, but the burden of... Uh, of the sort of production responsibilities being shared, uh, which means that we're all kind of enjoying it. There is, we're not suffering. Like it's this sort of awesome thing of 
exploration, sonic mm. exploration, yeah. song exploration. And Andy's written incredible songs. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, so also like internally, we've all kind of stepped up Absolutely. a level as well. Because we know we're working on something good. So yeah. everybody's kind of really focused on making sure it lives up to that standard 100%. Yeah. I'm very, very, very just encouraged by this whole process and how I, I know we all are, and especially us as a band of how we've been able to make progress and it didn't have to feel like just excruciating oh. work. Yes, yes, pulling it out, uh, pulling it. It's like pulling teeth, you know, it, it wasn't that this time. It was very... Um, organic and free-flowing and if it wasn't working we canned it right away and went on to the next thing and it's um, I just really hope that we can continue it all the way through and I, even into the mixing you I know? think it will I think I mean I had a conversation with Andy before we had even started we'd made a kind of concerted pact yeah effort <laughs> and decision that this was we were going to try and enjoy this process yeah. and even Rob says you know he, making records for him and I'm with him on this he you know, he suffers, like, that kind of crippling self-doubt and it's a, it can be a painful experience, especially when it's your own record. Huge. And he said this is the first one that he's enjoyed, but also all of our skills, like, his skills are incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. he's such an amazing engineer and he, he's, like, mad computer skills. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of... I love how that working relationship exists as well. So like, cool. the kind of fluidity of us just, like, kind of... Absolutely. Even this time around, I've been able being able to what we were doing in Echo and mm-hmm. take a drum, a drum take, you know, yeah. and comp it upstairs. Yeah. You know, so we have two different computer setups going: one upstairs, one downstairs. Downstairs is the main studio, and we we get the drums. We know that they sound good. We know that we have everything we want as far as fills and yeah. all the options. And then we send it upstairs to Robbie, Yeah. let him start working on it. And then he takes it back. And it was just, man, it was so efficient I and re- rewarding to hear in a day drums comped on a song yeah. and them sound exactly how well, I imagined. Let it, us know? clarify, though, the, okay. the comping okay. thing, because it sounds like we're like editing the shit out of your what you're doing. Right. Yeah, let's let's it's it's, it's more. There's there's a lot of like, you know, which song was it? You know, where there's sort of like overdubs and layering, almost mm. like percussive elements. Yeah, like and bad you, head and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and you'd given us like lots of sort of options of patterns, you know, rhythms, time signatures, and Bob would kind of just take all the ingredients, make the decision, come back down, and it would be like it was always like that. Yes. Um, but, and yes, but sometimes it would be like, well, the snare sounds a little bit better in the second chorus of like take four compared to take seven. You know, to be those sort of decisions that he'd just do it and it would be great. Yep. Yep. But we all could hear that stuff. Yeah. You know, I feel like the decision making process has been a little bit easier. It now, has. I don't know what, the, what it's going to be like later down the line. The boys oh. are taking over as soon as I kind of go back to London. But I, I, know, I know what they're capable of mm-hmm. and what the next. I'm kind of excited to hear what happens while I'm not here. Yeah, it's going to be extreme vocal time. I know. You know, Andy just going into the, you know, just like we all try to do in our realms of making sure every little nook and cranny has been explored. I appreciate that he views his role, you know, and his lyrics and his melodies and all that stuff in the same way. Yeah. He wants to make sure the second verse is different and better and yeah. unique and all those kinds of things. And so it will be interesting to see, you know, after that's going to be an intense process. I know that I, it'll be an intense process, but I know what's going to come out the other end mm-hmm. is it's going to feel like Christmas for yeah. me. Yeah. It'll be amazing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. And Absolutely. I do, I also kind of love that I'm not involved in it because Ethan and I are sort of coming in and out at in different points uh, Which is one final could, quick thing I want to yeah. touch on is the, the the dual producer thing in this record. I don't know how much of this you've done in your career of kind of allowing this second voice to come in, but I really, really respect the both of you immensely and appreciate your lack of egos, your willingness to be, you know, cooperative and and, uh, you know, 
and supportive of each other and him kind of, you know, there's times where he's on the talk back while you're still over there like dialing in a snare sound and we're in the middle of doing a take and he's going, that, you know, that was great. Or, you know, it wasn't great. You know, like, can we do a little bit more like this? And it was just such a um, conducive environment having both of you there. But I don't think that could always work, right? Two producers. I really enjoy co-producing because again it's sharing the load yes. but I mean Ethan is an absolute dream and we he kind is. of like bonded straight away and his personality is so good and he did the, the great thing of kind of bigging us both up to each other so and we both really respect Andy so we just assumed that both of us were or just each other was accepting yeah, it. yeah yeah like yeah. well I heard you're awesome I heard you're awesome okay we're <laughs> awesome and turns then, out you guys are awesome <laughs> but then he does something that I don't or or I'm not proficient in and I feel like I've learnt loads from him and I think vice versa. Mm -hmm. But also having someone, you know, because I'm essentially engineering the album as well, while I'm sort of still trying to dial things in and, I mean, on the last album, I know you guys say that my communication skills were a bit crap, which I resent. Who said that? But I, but I completely understand because if my mind's sort of thinking about 50 million things once and then I have to, co- you know, sort of comment on, on a performance and I'm like, well, it, you know, as Andy says, it doesn't sound like my kneecap. It sounds a little bit more like my ankle. And you're like, what? What the hell does that mean? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I don't know what that means either, but that was the, that was one of his examples. I think it's because my, pro, you know, my, I'm sort of like processing sort of different thoughts and emotions, and having Ethan sitting there, just you know, we have our little discussions, and he's sort of super. Yeah, it's like a grounding, concise. Yeah, absolutely. He's delivering the message in a concise way. Yeah, and we are. Um, we need a lot of reciprocation. Yeah, you know, when we're in the studio where there's a lot, the pressure's on, mm-hmm. where we're feeling emotional and sort of, you know, all the things that happen when you're like, are we making something good here? Yeah. Um, and it, You are, by the way. Yeah, hopefully, you know. But... Um, the songs are all so good. Having dead space, right? Yeah. After a take is almost like the killer yeah. of a session where it's like, you know, we finish the take and it's like, it was... Well, the, well, but the, it's also because like that bloody talkback button. It's like, where where is the clicker? Where is it? And this time around, there was none of that. No. We'd finish a take, and Ethan would like come in right away, yeah. always saying something positive, even yeah. if we knew it was like a total dud. Yeah. Um, but that that chemistry as well, you know. Where I feel like last record, there was just you couldn't do three things at once, yeah. you know. And he definitely helped fill in. I some don't of that. have memories of not. Having good communication. I don't really have that many memories of no, that record anymore. No, but you've anymore. said it many times. I'll work on it. <laughs> because I was so bloody nervous. <sighs> Probably. I don't, should I say that that sucked? That sucked. Tim, play better. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think also this time we we kind of mic'd the kit to the way that you play mm-hmm. as opposed to the other thing. But also the last... We also, real quick, we're, we are a better band than we were. And right. I think more, you know, we did a lot of pre-pro. pre-pro. Yeah. That's really, honestly, like really what it comes yeah. down to is we did a ton of pre-pro for this record and really tried to, as a band, I feel like we took all the things we learned with you during Black Mile mm-hmm. and then inserted that into the pre-pro process of like, let's address the bridges in these songs yeah. instead of waiting till we get in the studio and going like, oh, let's see how it feels. Yeah. You know, we, you know, not that we did that a ton on the last no. record. I mean, we're, we, we put time in, but this time around, I feel like we, we, we tried to look under every rock yeah. and make sure... You know, every little thing of this is as organized as it can be. So when we go in the studio, we're spending the time on sounds. Yeah. Well, the songs were, and the kind of transitions and the moments, they were fully realized yes. before we went to the studio. That is often. I'm proud a, of that. Yeah, I'm I proud am. of that for you guys as well, because that's sort of the hardest bit. And that's sort of normally what you spend time on in pre-production. Like the songs exist. There's probably like a groove and there's chords and there's parts and there's riffs. But what is this? What is this song about? What is the feeling? What are we trying to convey? Mm-hmm. And those kind of moments had been fully established, we so were, that everything else was just like 
Let's get right to it. Yeah, it's like little, just kind of yeah. icing on the cake stuff. Well, it has been, without a doubt, I, I think we would all say the best record making process we've ever gone through. I'm, I really hope that the fans and people who hear this record, that they, they will hear that in the product. And I truly believe that they will. It's definitely the most material we've ever come out the other side with. Yeah. Um, and just big smiles, you know what I mean? That high five vibe yeah. of like, we're all like, yes, this is exactly the what we went, went in trying to capture and we came out the other side feeling better than what it was. And you're such a huge part of that. Thank I appreciate you. you so much for being like you were the person willing to go cook for everybody and and spend time and hours. You're still you still have that personality that allows you to be so efficient with us, a bunch of hard-headed, proud ego egomaniacs, and you come right in the mix with us and help us get um, the best the best of what we can get. And with Ethan in the mix this time around, it really just was on some next level. So. Thank you in so many ways for being a huge part of this record. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. And thank you for being on the podcast and talking with me about some of your experiences. I'd love to do it more because you really have so much. I mean, there was so many things we could talk about. Yeah. I'm sorry I didn't even really get into, you know, your long list of accomplishments. And um, you've really been on a tear, I feel like, in the last few years of things landing and accomplishments. And um, I guess I could say, look Catherine Marks up. Um, check it out for yourself. She doesn't really need me to to uh, to build her up because her her resume speaks for itself. But um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, and more more so having you running this record and 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 helping us build something we feel like we're proud of and we're excited about. And you really can't ask for any more, right? Coming out no. of a record, you really can't ask <laughs> for anything more than what we've been getting. So. Um, good on you, and, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, um, so real quick, I just want you to be able to plug, you know, some things real quick about your your Insta handles, things like that, where people can find you if they want to look you up, see what yeah. you're up to. It's my Twitter is CJ Marks, and my Instagram is CJ Marks. It's easy, guys. Yeah. You can look it up. Make sure you check out Catherine. Follow her. Only message nice things if you're going to do it. And um, and um, I'm just so happy to know you and to know one of the most badass women working in the record industry right now and thank to have you. you on this record. So uh, thanks again. Thanks, Timmy. All right. Love you. Hey, we want to thank you again for checking out the Tim Berry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe, rate us, review us, love us, Check us out and keep listening to the episodes. Thanks.